Welcome to the Machine Learning and Data Science Papers On The Go podcast. Machine learning and data science are rapidly evolving fields, and it is my hope that this podcast can help you be better on top of the most recent and fascinating advancements. Hey, hey, and welcome. Uh, This is the Machine Learning and Data Science Papers On The Go podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks for listening. I'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe. Uh, and I'm really excited to to go on this adventure with you and to explore more. Uh, this is going to be episode one, part one, Deep Learning's Million Dollar Question, Rethinking Generalization and Why We Should Care. All right, let's jump right in. So here is the million dollar question that we will be considering Uh, in both part one and part two, which is why don't neural networks overfit when they have so many parameters, when they are so over-parameterized? So as a review, overfitting is when the model starts to memorize the training data rather than actually learning the pattern we want it to learn behind it. So for instance, it's like the kindergartner that memorizes two plus two is four, three plus three is six, but they don't actually know what two plus three is because they've just been memorizing all these addition fast facts, but they have not been actually learning how to do the addition, uh, that the kind of framework and and pattern that underlies all the training data. So this kind of a um, an overfitting, underfitting, or also also called a bias variance trade-off. And you can usually tell if something is overfitting if it does really well on the training data but doesn't do very well on the test data because it's just memorizing everything on the training data, getting really good performance on there, but not doing so well on the test data, data it hasn't seen before that really tests the patterns and concepts we wanted to know. Now, what is pretty crazy about neural networks and deep learning is that you can get really great training and testing performance on a neural network. And that suggests that it's actually not overfitting which is odd because in classical statistics, um, standard modeling, classical modeling, there is the belief that the more parameters you have, uh, the kind of more more complex you make the mo- the more complex you make the model, the more capable it is of just memorizing the data instead of actually being forced to learn something. Um, and so, given that neural networks are so over-parameterized. I may have heard may have heard of the GPT-3 model recently making headlines with 175 billion parameters. That is massive, so heavily uh, over-parameterized, but still they're able to get impressive training and testing performance. So classical statistics statistics just go straight out of the window in terms of deep learning, and so our kind of question will be to explain well, what is actually going on here. And many people think they have many answers. Some of those answers work. Some of those answers don't work so well. Um, But we will be trying to explore this really big and really fascinating, very interesting question uh, with with quite a few papers and kind of how those papers propose an answer to this. So I'll be breaking down this uh, kind of million dollar question um, uh, topic into two parts. Uh, The first part, uh, the one that we're going to be talking about today is getting an important context and mindset for how to actually approach these uh, hypotheses and big paradigm shifts that we'll be making in part two 
Um, so this is just kind of setting the, the important groundwork and framework. Uh, what have others been saying? Um, that, that kind of thing. And that, that'll make uh, jumping into uh, really complex and interesting hypotheses in part two a lot easier. All right, getting in. So first, I think it's important to get understanding of how big neural networks are. Uh, because if you've ever designed a neural network, you know how easy it is nowadays with you know, easy to call APIs and frameworks just to add another layer, call another package, and boom, you start adding and tacking on millions of parameters. And we just throw it around because it's just a few million parameters. Um, but I think that many of us forget just how powerful uh, millions of parameters can be. So let's forget about the 175 billion parameters in GPT-3. Millions of parameters are already huge. Um, when we tack on an, another zero, right? Remember that we're multiplying everything by 10, and that can get very quick, uh, very, very big, very quickly. All right, so <clears throat> this brings us to our first paper, and it does a good job, I think, of exploring just how much. Uh, how much neural networks have the capability to memorize and overfit, um, at least according to a traditional understanding of how models learn. So this is a paper called Understanding Deep Learning Requires Rethinking Generalization uh, by Chi Ren Zhang, Sammy Bengio, Maurice Hart, Benjamin Recht, and Oriol Vignoles. Sorry if I, if I uh, butchered those names. So in part of their paper, they did an experiment on the Cypher 10 dataset. And that is 60,000 images uh, of kind of everyday objects. It has 10 classes. And each one of those classes has 6,000 images in it. And what they did was they screwed up all the labels. They completely random, randomized and shuffled all the labels. So before, maybe you had an image of a dog and the label was a dog. Now the label gets completely shifted to, uh, let's say, a train. And then maybe you have another image of a dog, and that one gets assigned to, let's say, a boat. So there is no relationship to be learned here. Uh, and so they had an Inception V3 neural network architecture be trained on this completely randomized data. And Inception v3 is not a huge network uh, architecture. It's only 24 million parameters. If you compare that to the really giant neural network, uh, other really giant neural networks architectures, ones that are a little bit uh, more modern, let's say, Inception is kind of a baby. Uh, but what is pretty shocking is that Inception v3 was able to memorize everything perfectly. So it's training loss, the performance on data it has already seen is almost perfect. All right, so the authors then, the next step they did was they shuffled the pixels. So maybe one pixel was there before, now it gets replaced with another one. So now not only are the labels screwed up, but the images are screwed up as well. Um, and still, the entire network, all the performance, uh, on training data near perfect. So how incredible is this? These are all just kind of like numbers and et cetera. Let's just take, uh, let's just go over this again. So all the pixels have been shuffled. 
and the labels have been shuffled. And the model can still somehow associate every almost random image with a label. Uh, let's assume that each image is a 300 by a 300, uh, 300 by 300 pixels. In all likelihood, it would be a lot larger, I believe. Um, but let's just roll with that. So that's 90,000 pixels per image. And then very heavy noise has been applied with shuffling. So it's essentially 90,000 random pixels. So that means that you're memorizing 60,000 sets of 90,000 pretty much random values, and then repeating back to me which set of 90,000 random pixel values corresponds to one of 10 random classes. That is amazing. That is uh, a marvel of memorization. So here's what's interesting, which is that, OK, let's just go back to the initial one. The model was able to associate each image with a random label. Maybe, I mean, that's pretty impressive. Maybe it's not that impressive, though, because, I mean, images of everyday objects, they tend to have a structure to them. So, you know, dogs and cats both have legs. To store them in an efficient manner, you only need to really look at like differences between their their faces, let's say, because maybe their bodies are similar. So then you can get, in terms of classes, a really compact representation, uh, perhaps, if in theory. So then when you shuffle up the pixels, that compactness is not as clear. Like We don't really know how they would go about doing that. So it really is amazing that neural networks can essentially store an entire data set of pretty much random pretty much random things. And it's still able to store everything very compactly to memorize everything. So of course, the test performance was complete rubbish. Um, it just learned random labels associated with random pixels. Um, but what is pretty incredible is this feat of memorization. So from what we should take away from this experiment is that neural networks can store a lot of information and that we are likely almost always probably underestimating the amount of information that we have there. So with this information, I think an objective that we should be trying to uh, search for is how to better use that massive amount of information. How can we better understand it? So what has been happening a lot is researchers say, all right, we know that neural networks can store a lot of things, but why stop to understand, to do the hard work of understanding exactly why, when you can just throw more parameters at it? And that is what researchers have been doing. Uh, neural networks have progressively been getting larger and larger and larger. And still, uh, you may have heard of the, it's com neural networks are commonly referred to as uh, black boxes, just because still, Still, to, to many people, it just seems to be um, a series of matrix multiplications that no one really understands. And that is kind of true uh, currently. But what I'm happy to see and really excited to see is that there is uh, more recently a trend of research that is getting more in-depth um, into exactly why these neural networks are able to both train, get really 
great performance on training data set despite their massive overparameterization and still get really great test performance as well. It's a real puzzler, but it's essential to understanding how you can better utilize the massive space that neural networks have. All right, so I'm gonna set you up for our next paper that we're going to be looking at. And I want to go back to this idea of a um, bias variance trade-off, of an underfitting, overfitting trade-off. And this is something that plays really well into the idea of um, just how much information can a neural network store. Because if a neural network is has so many parameters that it can essentially memorize this whole massive data set, do you expect it to be doing the hard work of actually finding relationships between the pictures and actually being able to classify uh, these, these images to find the, the hard relationships between them? Well, classical statistics would tell us no. If you have a very large number of parameters, no, the model is going to take the easy way out. They're, they, they have more than enough space to store your entire data set, basically. So why even bother trying to spend effort finding a way to compress it, um, to find relationships, um, to be intelligent, basically? On the other hand, you have a really low number of parameters. And that is if you your model is just not complex enough to model the phenomena given. So going back to the example of the kindergartner, that it does not know what 2 plus 3 is, but knows what 2 plus 2 and 3 plus 3 is, that is like having that kindergartner learn calculus. Because the, the that kid's thinking just has not matured yet. They don't have the enough complexity um, or experience to, to be set up for learning that much more complex topic. So if you imagine a graph, um, on the x-axis is the number of parameters. On the y-axis is the loss, and we desire a small loss, so smaller is better. And just draw a U on that. Uh, and that's actually also maybe a V, a kind of a hybrid between a, a U and a V. But the main point is that as the number of parameters increases, the loss begins as really bad, right? Because you're underfitting. You don't. It's not complex enough to model the phenomena. So you don't have a really great loss. And then as the number of parameters increases, loss starts going down and down and down, boom, and it hits a minimum. And that is the optimal minimum. Because if you go any further, the loss is going to go up again. And that's because it's starting to overfit. You're giving it more complexity than it needs to have um, to actually understand the data. That's when to take the easy way out. So that minima is what is traditionally desired um, in classical statistics. We want to find the kind of golden zone to allow neural networks to generalize. We do not want them to have too much or too little, kind of the, the Goldilocks zone. All right, so this is the context for our next paper titled Reconciling Modern Machine Learning Practice and the Bias Variance Trade-Off by Mikhail Plakina, Daniel Sub, Siren Ma, and Sumik Mandala. Again, sorry if I butchered those names. All right, so their question basically was, all right, this is kind of the, the so-called classical statistics regime, where let's say 
it only considers models between 0 and 1,000 parameters, right? And just for the sake of simplicity, let's say that the optimal number of parameters is 500, right? Not too, not too many, not too, too small, uh, not too few number of parameters for the model to actually learn from the data. What if we made it 1 million or 10 million or 100 million? What if we extend the domain? Is it still just, is the graph still just going to be a U basically? Um, what happens if we extend the number of parameters um, in that kind of graph? All right, so they did a bunch of empirical experiments. They tried several algorithms and Many of these are kind of more standard machine learning algorithms, uh, not quite deep learning, but like decision trees and, um, and those kinds of things. Um, and they plotted out the performance over the number of parameters, trying to produce a graph that we just described, except the number of parameters doesn't just go from like in an example, zero to 1000, but it gets extended way far. And what they found is that it actually looks kind of more like a W where it goes, uh, there's, so it starts from uh, high loss, low loss, back to high loss, back to low loss. So because there's kind of that, that, that repeating section, uh, it's been termed a deep double descent. And what it basically means is that you kind of have a classical regime of just of statistical thinking where at a certain point more parameters is worse but then if we just ignore that and keep on going keep on increasing the number of parameters at some point it starts to go into the deep learning regime the modern uh, machine learning regime and then the loss actually starts to get better as you increase the number of parameters and so they were able to prove using empirical evidence that this was the case not exactly why, but just that this odd phenomenon does indeed exist. It's not just a U, it actually looks more like a W if we extend uh, the number of parameters. So this is an observed phenomenon. Our reaction to this should be, wait, hold up, this is really crazy. How is this the case? Because this goes against everything that we generally as humans find intuitive. Somehow, at a certain point, the number of parameters gets better when it increases. So, even, so when the capability of the model to memorize data instead of actually learning gets larger, it somehow also does better at doing the learning. That's, a, that's pretty odd. All right, let's look at some answers. To, to to this. What explains this steep double descent? Um, well, a lot of people will point to the role of regularization to prevent overfitting. So uh, just to clarify, regularization is um, things like dropout or augmentation or weight decay, things that kind of limit the complexity of a model that are kind of saying, um, we're going to add some noise here, or we're going to restrict um, how complex this model can be to prevent that kind of overfitting. So let's go back to the very first paper that we were talking about, 
um, understanding deep learning requires rethinking generalization. So there's a lot to take from this paper, but I think what's relevant to this section is that it does a great job of exploring the role of regularization in generalization. Whew, say that, say that 10 times fast. So one of their key takeaways uh, in experiments is that explicit regu regularization, so be that, let's say, dropout augmentation, weight decay, these all help definitely. Um, but they are not required for generalization. They are not the basis for explaining why this whole deep double descent works. They are not the basis for why neural networks and these massively complicated uh, models are able to perform so well. So they did um, a few experiments. Uh, they had they used uh, the inception uh, neural network architecture, and they trained an inception architecture with with dropout and augmentation, and it got an 89% test accuracy. Then they trained the the architecture without dropout or augmentation, and it got an 85.75% test accuracy. That is a 3% difference. The question we should be asking is if these explicit regularization mechanisms really do play such a fundamental role in preventing overfitting if they only account for 3% of an increase in, in understanding and test, test accuracy. So these authors said no. Um, and their conclusion is that implicit regularization is responsible. So it is not kind of what, what humans are saying, hey, I'm going to add this to prevent overfitting. It's something more implicit, something more beneath the surface that is actually contributing to this regularization, to this prevention of overfitting in very highly overparameterized models. So they hint at some suggestions. So maybe, let's say, a batch normalization layer or an optimizer that just happens to, let's say mathematically somehow, assist with reducing gen generalization error. Um, but these are all uh, a little bit more speculative. We still need research, but we've gotten to a really good point so far with these um, papers. So we, we've gotten to understand deep double descent uh, and this interesting empirically observed observation that this is something that is actually happening. And we have shown that kind of a conventional and, and easier, more human answer, uh, regularization, explicit regularization, really doesn't seem to be um, responsible for this. So what could it be? Well, we're going to take a really quick break, um, and then we'll be right back and exploring uh, more of what possible answers are. All right. All right, welcome back from our very quick break. Uh, we just have one more paper uh, to get through uh, before the end of uh, episode one, part one. So where we last left off, um, we had found this interesting phenomenon of the deep double descent. And also that regularization, which is kind of the, an easy answer that a lot of people tend to, may actually not be responsible for explaining why neural networks uh, 
actually do work when they are very overparameterized, despite being overparameterized, I should say. So some people have tried to arrive at something of a more theoretical answer. And that really is what we're looking for, because uh, study after study um, has proven empirically that this does happen. We want to know why does it happen, so we can use it and build smarter, um, more efficient neural networks in the future. So this leads us to the next paper uh, called Scaling Description of Generalization with Number of Parameters in Deep Learning. Um, there are nine authors, and they all have very French or Swiss names. So um, apologies, I will just go with Mario Geiger Edel, plus eight more authors. This was written in October of 2019, fairly recent, and they attempted to take a very theoretical, very mathematical lens to explaining why this whole deep double descent thing was happening. Um, to start, they do a good job of summarizing um, what others have hinted at. Um, so I'm going to read to you a quote from their paper. Um, and it goes like this, quote, in particular, Recent works on the overparameterized regime of deep neural networks have shown that the landscape around a typical initialization point becomes essentially convex, allowing for convergence to a global minimum during training." End quote. So what this is saying is that many studies suggest that overparameterization does not make the landscape as rough and jagged as we thought before actually makes it more convex, which is a trait of um, a loss surface that we want so that it is more easy for the optimizer to move around and find the minimum. So these studies have been suggesting that perhaps over-parameterization, over, over um, it has something to just the aspect of being overparameterized um, helps in some way. This um, is an alternative suggestion to um, the kind of implicit uh, regularization suggestion of previous authors, which instead suggests that maybe it's found in um, some layer or some optimizer's special properties. Uh, that 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 assist in this. So this is actually saying that just being overparameterized itself um, helps. And actually, to be honest, there there is a fair bit of blending between the two, um, but it is interesting to see the different directions that research is being taken in this respect. Okay, back to the paper. Their unique contribution is um, they well they they rely on something called a neural tangent kernel or NTK. And it is a theoretical tool to describe gradient descent. So to describe the state of the neural network um, as training happens. So this allows you to make statements about generalization error, uh, about loss surfaces, about training dynamics. Um, it's mathematically very intricate and involved. So we will not be going too much in depth about that. But all we need to know is that uh, the neural tangent kernel is a tool that lets us look at the state of the neural network um, across training. 
So their unique contribution is that using the neural tangent kernel, they are able to show theoretically that the deep double descent occurs. And that actually, when you, ha when you analyze the, the, the neural tangent kernel, as the number of parameters approaches infinity, the neural tangent kernel approaches a minimum and becomes constant. So that is very interesting. So that's suggesting that as the number of parameters reaches infinity, as it gets larger and larger and larger, at a certain point, there is a minimum error. But it doesn't actually make the, um, make the loss go back up. So it's not actually a W. It's more like kind of a cross between a U and a W. It's a little bit hard to describe um, over audio. But if you just imagine a W and you kind of chop off the vertical aspect of the, of the W on the right side, it's kind of like a, a cursive U, which has like a tail on the right. And essentially what that is suggesting is that you have the traditional U in classical statistics. And then if you just increase the number of parameters after you pass that classical statistics regime, it just gets smaller and smaller. And at the very least, it at the very least, it just stays constant. So no 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 improvement in performance. But you can never really get worse performance by increasing the number of parameters. And of course, this is all proven through mathematical equations and derivations um, and then the, the neural tangent kernel. But it explains, it gives a, a theoretical framework for analyzing these types of things. And it explains generalization and how they're able to do so, how neural networks are able to do so despite their overparameterization. So many other works as well, including this one, have explored this theoretical aspect. And they're seeking to put into theory some of the empirical um, results that we've seen about deep doubles descent, about some capability to generalize even if neural networks are very heavily overparameterized. But still, they are equations and equations. And personally, it is my belief that an equation can uh, equation it, it really an equation by itself is not something that we can trust too seriously or 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 utilize too seriously and what i mean by that is not that equations aren't helpful of course they're helpful um, humanity's advancements have basically been made on the basis of equations what I'm saying is that if we want to really use and understand the dynamics behind something, we're not going to get it if we just have an equation. So for instance, take a quadratic, right? Like x squared plus 3x plus 4. What does it mean to say x squared plus 3x plus 4 equals 0? Um, well, we don't really know. We can do all sorts of algebraic manipulations, et cetera, et cetera. But honestly, the easiest way to understand what that is is just to graph it out, right? It is very difficult to explain these kind of mathematical concepts 
unless you have a more human intuition of what it means. So in the case of quadratics, graphing it out, uh, you realize, okay, well, when it equals zero, that's when it basically crosses below this, um, this x-axis line. Um, and so this equation doesn't do that. So it seems that there are no real solutions to this quadratic. And in a human sense, that is a lot more understandable than x squared plus 3x plus 4. Plug it into the quadratic formula. You get an error. It's a complex number, not a real number, et cetera, et cetera. The same thing with this. We can have the neural tangent kernel and all these theoretical tools act as frameworks and stepping stools. But I don't think that we should be settling down and just accepting these as just explaining it. Um, because I think we, we still need to, to find some sort of more human explanation um, beneath all of this. Um, but still, uh, I think very fascinating to see that um, we both have now have empirical and very uh, rigid uh, mathematical theoretical explanations for why this is happening. What we're missing is a human explanation, an intuitive explanation. Um, we did have one intuitive explanation before, regularization, right? But that was also proven to perhaps not be the case, not be responsible for the phenomenon that we're observing. All right, so that brings us back to the million dollar question. Why do neural networks not overfit when they're so overparametrized? We have not answered it completely. We've gotten pretty far. Um, and we've gotten to a really good place to set the stage and to look a little bit into what possible answers might be. We know that traditional methods that we've been thinking about uh, as responsible for generalization and, and uh, kind of a traditional view of viewing um, overfitting and underfitting, it may not actually be applicable or working in the broader, uh, broader scale of massive numbers of parameters and modern deep learning. All right, so why should we care? Well, one would expect knowing how neural networks generalize to be a pretty important aspect of working with it. If we don't understand how an algorithm generalizes, how are we supposed to use it effectively? Well, we're not really. We're throwing parameters and parameters and parameters at it. And I don't think that's very efficient, especially given that we are approaching a, a maximum, I think, in terms of computing power. We need to look not at how can we throw more computing power behind this algorithm, but instead taking looking back and saying, whoa, we have millions, if not billions, of parameters in these massive models. Surely we can use these more efficiently. And uh, from what we've seen, it suggests that we really can, we can. So I think understanding how neural networks generalize will totally revolutionize, uh, revolutionize the, the deep learning landscape. Before we leave for now, I want to leave you with a question, something to chew on in the meantime. How can a completely random neural network get really great performance? So based on where we ended up in part one and what we will cover in part two, we will be able to answer that question. Um, but where we are 
uh, we, we already know quite a few things. So to kind of um, think over and mull over this question, just think about um, at the very beginning, we talked about the sheer amount of information that a neural network has and how you think that can play into an amazing, the amazing phenomenon of a completely random neural network having really great performance. An intriguing question for sure, and um, an intriguing topic that we will continue to cover in the next part. Thank you for being here. I really do appreciate it. I hope that you found it as interesting and fun as I did. Um, be sure to uh, contact me or um, get in touch, leave a review to let me know um, how I'm doing. I'd love to hear from you. All right, thanks. I will see you guys in part two. Stay tuned. Hey, thanks for being with me uh, for the duration of this podcast. Uh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andre Dashi. That's my handle. You can also find my articles on Medium. I write data science and machine learning articles. Uh, give it a read if you find this podcast um, interesting. Machine learning and data science papers on the go are on Spotify, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get uh, your podcasts. So I hope to see you in the next uh, episode and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you.